in the second part, I want to talk, uh, turn our attention to the political side. So let's do that. Let's let's look at the political side. So the, the war is over. Appomattox is over. Lincoln's assassinated. Now everything shifts. We're not letting them up easy. Talk to me. In a world of incompetent bosses, micromanagers, and petty tyrants, one management professor claims that he can help you become the kind of leader that you would want to follow. You are listening to The Leadersmith. Now, here is your host, Darren Gertis. Well, you and I, as we said earlier, went to Regent University, which is in the Hampton Roads area, which takes includes Virginia Beach and Norfolk. At that time, Norfolk was a very important, it still is a very important uh, center in on the East Coast. And so in the uh, courts in Norfolk, they indicted uh, several of the Confederate generals, including Lee and Longstreet. I don't remember who else. And they called them uh, traitors and they wanted to try them and hang them. And they would have, if, if, if it would have went through, they would have hanged these generals. Grant got, well, what happened is Lee got wind of this, obviously, and he sent a letter to General Grant and said, sir, in your document uh, at the surrender at Appomattox, you said that we would, as long as we obeyed the laws, that we would be protected. Well, what's going on here? Well, Grant, this is the first Grant heard about it. And so he went directly to President Andrew Johnson and said, uh, this cannot happen. And Johnson said, no, it's going to happen. We're going to hang those bloopity beliefs. And, uh, and Grant said, President Lincoln and I made sure that this clause was put into the surrender so that we would have peace between the sections. And mm -hmm. if we start hanging people, we could start the war all over again. Yep. And Johnson said, I don't care. They need to be punished. They're traitors and they need to be punished. And Grant said, if you go through with this, I will resign and I will fight you. And at that time, Grant was the number one most popular person in the entire United States, sure. North and South. Well, maybe Lee in the South, but Grant was over Lee, you know, yeah. and uh, especially in the federal area. And Andrew Johnson knew that he couldn't fight against Grant. And so he backed down. So Grant saved the life of Lee and Longstreet by and Longstreet adhering out, to this. Longstreet turned out to be fairly loyal too later on, right? Like well, Longstreet like a, and Grant were best friends uh, before the war. Is that right? In I fact, didn't know. That. Yeah, Longstreet was at Grant's wedding. Uh, Longstreet is a cousin, and I don't know exactly if it's a first cousin or or second, but a cousin of Julia Grant. So they knew each other very well. And they always felt bad uh, during the war. And um, after Appomattox, or it was the day of the signing of the surrender at Appomattox, after everything was signed, Lee sent for his top uh, generals because all of the top northern generals were already there in the room. There were only two southern generals in the room, and the rest of the room was filled with northern generals. So Lee said, go get my top commanders. And so when Longstreet entered the, the house, Grant got up, walked over, put his hand out and shook his hand. And he said, 
Pete, what do you say we have a game of brag to remember the good old days? Brag was a, a card game that they had played together in the Mexican War and when they were stationed at Jefferson Barracks in St. Louis. And later, Longstreet wrote about that. He said, my heart glowed at that moment. And I thought, my God, why should people uh, fight against each other who were born to be brothers? And that moment rekindled their friendship. And they were the closest of friends for the rest of their lives. And then when Grant was president, he named uh, uh, Longstreet to several different posts. And it's yeah. one of the reasons why uh, people in the South have not given Longstreet the respect that is really due to him. As far as I know, there are only two statues of Longstreet in the entire United States. Think of that. How many statues of Lee are there? Dozens, maybe hundreds, right? But because of his stance, so I guess it's in his hometown. And then only like in the 1970s or 80s, they finally erected a, a small, almost pathetic looking statue to him at Gettysburg. And wow. uh, it, it yeah. was because he didn't follow the Confederate line after the war. So I sent you down a rabbit trail with Longstreet. <laughs> Let me bring you back to, uh, to politics. So Johnson is about to, or they're about to hang him. Johnson wants to do it. Uh, Grant stops it. What else do we want to know about Grant? Like, I mean, he was really more of Lincoln's legacy than anything Absolutely. that Johnson did. So Absolutely explain that correct. out. Yeah. The, uh, as you know, Johnston, Johnson ended up, uh, going up against the radical Republicans in Congress and was impeached. And he was only saved from being ousted out of office by one vote. And, uh, but he was able to finish out his term, but everybody knew that he was gone. And basically the only person that most people wanted to vote for was Ulysses S. Grant. And so he ended up winning two terms in a walk both times, just a landslide. And um, so during those two terms, like I said earlier, he pushed through all these very important uh, reconstruction laws. Mm -hmm. Reconstruction really got its steam behind Grant because what had happened is that the flag of equal rights and racial reconciliation that Abraham Lincoln had carried. Uh, and by the way, he only picked up that flag about halfway through the war. Right. Um, and that's what people need to realize too, is that Lincoln also grew during his time as president. Right. But Grant picked up that flag and ran with it. Lincoln, if I, if I'm not mistaken, his, his primary goal was keeping the union together and that mutated into equal rights but it was we have to keep like his overriding ambition was just preserving the country when he started and that yeah. grew into something else yeah he was uh you know the the more radical abolitionists really pressed him on this and he responded i think it was to garrison and said um if i could uh free all the slaves and hold the union together i would if i could free some and hold the union i would if i couldn't free any and hold the union I would do that because the union is paramount. And it's very true. You can't have freedom without a country. Right. And you can't have uh, freedom of the slaves if you don't control the entire country. So the union had to be uh, preserved. So explain how Johnson goes off the rails here and then how Grant uh, bears the legacy again. Well, Johnson, as I said, was a Southerner. So he was very much a white supremacist. Okay. And so. The radical Republicans really were much more in line with the thinking of Lincoln. 
in some ways they were out ahead. And if you ever watch the movie Lincoln, Thaddeus Stevens, who was their one of their leaders, uh, Tommy Lee Jones played him brilliantly in the movie Lincoln. And he's talking about, you know, all these things, taking away the wealth of the white people and giving it to the black people and all these kind of things. And, and Lincoln says, whoa, slow down. You know, we wanted we want freedom, but we want it incrementally. So Lincoln was actually a very pragmatic politician, which is why he ran on a platform saying, I'm not running to abolish slavery. He made it extremely clear because he knew he could not be elected saying that he was going to abolish slavery. Instead, he said, I am running to contain slavery. And that's what freaked out the Southerners because they wanted this Southern empire that would just keep going and going and going. So Grant, uh, as opposed to uh, Andrew Johnson, who who was like, yeah, you know, I mean, we don't really want to give rights to the slaves. Uh, that that was why the Republicans just kept vetoing everything or, or um, kept passing laws and Johnson would veto them and then they would override the veto again and again, which led to the impeachment. Well, Grant wasn't about that at all. He wanted equality. He thought, and, and he wrote uh, in the end of his memoirs, he said, the black people did not come to this country, most of them on their own volition, but they're here now. And we fought a war to bring equality. And so therefore they should be given the rights of every other American citizen. Right. Now, that leads us to the Civil Rights Act of 1875. 75. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Tell me about that and what happened there and why it went off the rails. Well, <clears throat> the way that uh, Grant looked at it, he felt like he needed to lead the country to winning the peace in the same way that they had won the war. And so in winning the war, they, you know, uh, and that's what the movie Lincoln is all about, the 13th Amendment being passed, that abolished slavery forever. Well, Grant said, OK, now that we've abolished slavery, we can't have uh, two different classes of citizens, some citizens with full rights and some citizens with minor rights. I mean, that's like going back to ancient Rome. Uh, this is America. And the Declaration of Independence said all men are created equal. Well, it's either true or it's not true. So you have to say that a black person is not a human being in order to say that they are not equal. And of course, that's what the Confederates did. Grant's point and Lincoln's point was we fought a war to answer that question. And once that question is answered, then we need to, in, legisla in legislation at least, to begin with, we need to pass laws that make that de facto. Now, it, get, it need, it's still getting to the hearts of people today. Sure. Uh, and it will never end because we're human and we're fallen people. But at least in law, it needed to be placed there to say, in law, constitutionally, all are created equal and all have equal rights. And so they pushed through this Civil Rights Act of 1875 because what had happened is after the Civil War, a lot of the former Confederates went home, ran for office, and were elected again. And so they started passing all these uh, very pre prejudicial and discriminatory acts. And so Grant knew that they needed to deal with it on the federal and constitutional level to strike those acts down. Mm -hmm. And that's why he pushed through this. I mean, the Civil Rights Act of 18, or 1964 is the same thing, but we had to go through 30 years of the civil, civil rights movement in order to make that happen. Sadly, 
It That's happened in 1875, but it was struck down in 1883 why by was it? a pro-Confederate Supreme Court. Yeah, so that's what I was going to ask. Was it, was it pro-Confederate or was it the same thinking that Justice Taney had when he was issuing Jed, uh, Dred Scott? Is that what I, was I think I, rather than pro-Confederate, I think a better way of saying it is a, a, a white supremacist Supreme Court. And when we're talking about white supremacists, we're talking about legit white supremacists, not the new not, variation. Not what is being espoused yeah, today. That was white supremacists. This is a whole new thing right. using the same language. Right. Uh, okay. I, I agree with you on that. I do believe there is an element of white supremacy in our country, but I also believe that there's an element of racism in the hearts of many different people of many different colors. No, absolutely. And that is what we really need to deal with today. And I think that Grant is a great role model to speak to what's happening today. You, you mentioned earlier that, you know, it'll never go away because of sin. There's there's majority supremacism. There's minority supremacism. There's I'm better than you ism in every form. Exactly. It's just because this is the human condition where we're fallen and sinful. And that's how we act toward each other, unfortunately, unless we're redeemed. I, I get it. Um, so, OK, let me keep going. So the Supreme Court undoes the Civil Rights Act of 1875, which is which is very close to this uh, 1964 uh, act. Okay, what else did Grant do uh, during his term? Now, here here's why I'm asking this because when I read the textbooks when I was in public school, and, then, and this was in New Jersey, right? I mean, it, there's not a lot of Deep South sympathy uh, in this, but it was like you know, Grant he was a uh, he was kind of like Eisenhower, brilliant in war and came back and was kind of bumbling in office. And except for like Eisenhower wasn't corrupt. But I remember learning Grant was terribly corrupt and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. No, Grant was, was Grant was pretty much incorruptible. See, again, that's the big lie. That's, that's mind blowing. The problem was that. And, and again, I, I encourage people to go and actually do their own research. Grant's cronies, the people that he put in place. They were the ones who had all of these, um, uh, you know, scandals. Mm -hmm. And one of Grant's strengths was also one of his great weaknesses. And you talked about his leadership strengths. One of his great strengths was loyalty. He was very loyal. Once you became his friend, you were his friend for life. And so, unfortunately, he appointed several of his friends. Many of them were on his staff or were generals during the Civil War, to these different posts. And unfortunately, they didn't have the same kind of morals and character that he had. And so they were corrupt. And so there were a lot of, you know, this was a time of the railroads and mm -hmm. oil is starting to boom. And, um, you know, it's the beginning of the boom of the Industrial Revolution. So there's all kinds of opportunities for temptation. Mm -hmm. And sadly, many of these people fell into that temptation. But it was never Grant. The mistake that he made was letting them stay longer than they should. He just couldn't grasp that these people that were his friends could do this not only to him, but to the country. Right. And so, again, the Lost Cause School said that his administration was filled with scandal as though to say that he was filled with scandal. He didn't do a single thing. You couldn't pin a single thing on Ulysses S. Grant other than being too loyal. So, so tell me about like the big three takeaways from his presidency. He did X, Y, and Z. If you wanted to just bullet point it for people who just, you know, they're not that familiar with this part of history. 
Number one, he destroyed the KKK. Okay. Did you know that? I I didn't know that. I I mean, to, <laughs> most to people don't mind, know that. To my so mind, he did KKK he did it in was... two ways. First of all, he enforced the laws of the South that were federal laws by leaving the army in place to uh, push forward Reconstruction and to fight against the, you know, the KKK was only one of many of these militant groups. They were uh, vigilantes. Mm -hmm. uh, if anybody went against their white supremacy, they would either terrorize them or kill them. And of course, um, they would terrorize the blacks to keep them subservient. And so the lynchings between the 1880s and the 1930s, uh, you can actually go onto different websites and see the number. They have the number of lynchings and it's mind boggling. So it's basically these vigilante groups taking the law into their, their own hands. And Grant said, we, we can't have that. So under Ulysses S. Grant, they formed the Justice Department. Oh, wow. In order, their main first goal under the first attorney general to oversee the Justice Department was to destroy the KKK. And they won. They won both through the military, but also through these um, grand juries, federal grand juries. And so they were able to basically drive the KKK underground for the next 20 years. We know that they came back yeah, out. And there was a resurgence, but at the time he had essentially, yeah. yeah okay. He drove them underground. Uh, basically, they knew that they were a pariah. And most people don't know about that. The laws that we, you know, and so there were two anti-KKK laws that were passed that Grant pushed through. And then the civil rights elements that we've already talked about, that would be number two. Okay. <clears throat> but I think that the uh, greatest triumph of Grant was maintaining the peace at that time of Reconstruction. And his, um, his slogan when he ran for president uh, in 1868 was, let us have peace. And if you go to the Grant tomb in New York City, Riverside Park, across the front is scrolled, let us have peace. And that generation built that tomb and they put that up there to remind people this is what Grant was all about. Wow. Um, Grant said to many people, including his doctor, Dr. Schrady, talked to him about, you know, as, as Grant was dying, they spent a lot of time together. and He talked to him about the different battles. And Grant said, I never went into a battle uh, with a desire to fight, and I was always thrilled when the battle was over. He said, I looked at battles in the Civil War as a doctor looks at a cancer that must be cut out. You don't want to do it. You want it to be as quick and as painless as possible, but you know that in order to save the life of the patient, you have to do it. And that was Grant's way of looking at things. And so when he died, uh, his funeral in Manhattan is still, they believe, the largest live funeral in American history, larger than Lincoln's. 1.5 million people came out and packed the streets of Manhattan. I have photographs. I went to the uh, Grant Presidential Library at Mississippi State and um, saw all these photographs. And there are people who are sitting on tops of the buildings. Every porch is full. The streets are full, as packed as they can be. There are people standing up on top of telephone poles or in trees to watch this uh, cortege. And several of the pallbearers were Southern generals. 
who came to give their respect to Grant. And several units, several regiments actually came from Confederate regiments to march in his funeral. Wow. And that's the kind of reconciliation that he worked his whole life for. Now, we know that that was very imperfect and it was only a start, but it was a tremendous start, especially uh, after the disaster of the Andrew jo uh, Johnson presidency. Uh, it's 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 uh, hard to fathom how that was then squandered uh, shortly thereafter. I mean, that's exactly. what a shame uh, to get that far. OK, I want to fast forward to the end of his life now where we're talking about, uh, you know, the the scandal where he's losing everything um, and trying to recover from that. Tell me about like the uh, Grant and Ward and what, what was going on. And I'll let you go from there. Yeah, as I had said, uh, Grant invested $100,000 of his own money into Grant Ward. His son borrowed money from his father-in-law, former Senator Chaffee from, uh, from Colorado, who had all this money from mining. And so he invested $100,000 into this thing. And their business partners were Ferdinand Ward, who was at the time considered the young Napoleon of Wall Street. Everybody thought he was a genius because he would take money and it would suddenly grow into this huge amount. Like no one else can do this. Well, we now know why. They also had a, a, a man named James Fish, who was the president of Marine Bank there in New York, who was another investor. And so what would happen is that Fish and Ward would run this scheme where they would take money that they needed uh, for paying these dividends, but then they'd get this huge, these huge investments coming in. Mm -hmm. And so it was robbing Peter to pay Paul. And so uh, Ward was the Bernie Madoff of the 1880s. And just like Bernie Madoff's house of cards eventually collapsed, the same thing happened with Grant and Ward. And so overnight, Grant went from thinking he was worth more than a million dollars to having exactly $80 in his pocket. Wow. Okay, so wow, that's that's tremendous. Um, so he's in a hole. He has to figure it out. He's get he gets uh, his diagnosis of what uh, did they did they know it was cancer at the time or did well just... the doctor knew it was cancer, but they didn't tell Grant immediately that it was cancer because just like today, you know, cancer is a very scary word, but back then cancer was always deadly. Yeah, I mean, oh, not always, but the vast majority of the time cancer was deadly. And so oh. they called it uh, some sort of uh, a thelioma or something like that, you know, using a more medical term. But Grant knew, you know, this is cancer because he left the doctor's office and went immediately over to the publisher saying, I've decided to write my memoirs. Uh, because so, he knew that his wife needed to be taken care of and he didn't have any money. So this was the only thing he could do in the time he had left. And so he wanted to get started on it immediately. So tell me about this Mark Twain connection, because this is the first time I've heard of that. Well, they had met when Grant was president and uh, a mutual friend introduced them. And, you know, Grant was a person who hardly said anything. And Mark Twain came into the president's office. It wasn't the Oval Office yet, um, but he came into the office and he was overwhelmed. So the two of them stood there just staring at each other. And finally, after like a long, uncomfortable pause, Mark Twain said, well, Mr. President, I'm not embarrassed. Are you? <laughs> and so years went by and Grant came back from, he went on a two-year uh, world tour after leaving the White House. 
his son had invested in the Comstock silver mine and had given his dad some money to go, you know, kind of rest after 20 years of serving his country without let up. So they toured the world and the money started to run out. So he came back and they wanted Grant to run for the Republican nomination for a third term. So he's in Chicago. And by this time, Mark Twain is now Mark Twain. He's really grown into this major literary figure and a great speaker, a humorist. And so Twain was supposed to be the final speech of the night. So he walks up on stage and there's, you know, 10,000 people in the audience or whatever it was. And Twain walks up next to Grant and they're waiting to be for Twain to be introduced. And Grant leans over to Twain and says, well, Mr. Twain, I'm not embarrassed. Are you? <laughs> so he had remembered what Twain had said to him. And yeah, that was the beginning humor. of a very close friendship. And so whenever either of them were anywhere near each other, they would see each other. They'd smoke cigars together, drink brandy. and Well, Twain would drink. Grant, by that point, had become abstinent. And, um, and they became very good friends. So Twain had actually approached Grant while Grant was in uh, the the Ward, uh, you know, the Grant and Ward business and said, I've started my own publishing company and I want you to write your memoirs. And Grant thought he was worth a million dollars. Why do I want to do that? Yeah. And so he said, nah, thank you. It means a lot to me that you would ask, but I'm not going to do it. So then after Grant and Ward collapsed and, and Grant now is dying, he was courted by several different people uh, who came to him to write his memoirs. And in the end, he chose Twain, uh, not only because of his friendship, uh, but because every time another publisher would up the ante, Twain would bid a, a little bit higher every single time. And so Grant and his son, Fred, who was Grant's really, you know, well, all of his sons and his children were close to him. But in the end, Fred was very close to him. And so they got a, a lawyer to check out the two leading publishers and to look at every aspect of it. So in this, Grant had learned from his failure at Grant Ward. And so in the end, the lawyer said, Mark Twain's the way to go. And that's what he did. Wow. that That's really uh, amazing. I, I had no idea that they were at all connected. Um, we're short on time. Uh, we're actually over time. Uh, here's what I want to, to do. I want to do two things. I want you to leave me with a couple of uh, leadership lessons from Grant, what, what do you want to stick in the mind of the person that's listening to this now? After you tell us where we find your book and where we find you, if somebody wants to follow up with you, you know, further speaking or whatever. Well, the first uh, leadership principle would be the title of my second book, and that is Forward. Grant had what was almost a superstition, and Horace Porter talks about how it almost brought him into great danger during the Battle of the Wilderness because Grant uh, had a superstition about ever retracing his steps. He never wanted to go backwards. Even riding a horse, he would go around a large area to come back so that he was always going forward if he missed a turn. <laughs> so he's a typical guy in that regard. <laughs> but what that did for Great. him is that uh, that is why he would not retreat and retool. He right. couldn't get that in his mind. He had to keep pressing forward. And so he told President Lincoln as he was going into the Overland campaign, I can guarantee you this, Mr. President, there will be no backward steps. That's a quote. 
And so that was something that was part of his character. And it was also part of his leadership strategy that you keep pounding and pounding and pounding until you get through. Now, having said that, the second leadership strategy was an understanding that there will be times when despite your pounding, you'll fail. Something doesn't work or something changes that you didn't anticipate. And so the second part of his strategy is he was always willing to rethink, re-strategize, but then he went back to pounding. Yeah. And I think there's great wisdom in that. And one of the, you know, some of the leaders that I've seen in life who have been successful have that same view of you keep pressing ahead and, you know, you keep throwing things against the wall to see what sticks and eventually something's going to stick. And then you go with that and you keep going with that until it stops milking and then you go to something else. But even while you're milking that thing that's working, you're still doing the R&D out in front, you know, looking at possible new ventures. And you never have just one canoe. You have all these different things. So Grant didn't have just one canoe. He had the army against Lee. He had uh, Sheridan, your relative, uh, winning in the in the Valley of the Shenandoah. Mm-hmm. He had Sherman down there fighting in Atlanta. And then he had Banks down uh, in the Southwest. And all of them were pounding, pounding, pounding. And eventually it brought the Confederacy to their knees. So I always end this podcast with a, uh, a quotation for contemplation. And it happens to be perfectly geared to what you just said. It's a quote by Lee that or by, by Grant that I'm sure that you'll recognize in every battle there comes a time when both sides consider themselves beaten. Then he who continues the attack wins. And that yes. that sounds just like him. Everything you just it's exactly what I just said in a quote. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so tell us how we can find you if people want to follow up and and where do they get the book? Well, the book is available wherever books are sold. Uh, you can go to grantvictorbook.com and with the second one, grantforwardbook.com, and those will take you to order the book. And then for my uh, articles, my speaking engagements, and so forth, my other books, uh, just my last name, vonbuzik.com, very simple, V-O-N. B-U-S-E-C-K.com. All right. Well, Craig, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you making time to come onto the podcast. And I, you know, I honestly, I learned a ton. Um, this, this was really informative. Uh, and I'm really shocked because I, I feel like I've just been duped in my education all my life. <laughs> Me and too. Me too. I, I thought the same things you did. Wow. All until right. Until I dug deep. Thank you so much for informing our audience. Well, thank you, Darren. It's been a pleasure being with you.